Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. This show's hosts are Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and myself, Mark Raycroft. We've added this special edition with Tim Irvin because our previous podcast, we went on an adventure with him to the Great Bear Rainforest. But what we didn't know at that time is he has done some incredible canoe trips all across Northern Canada. In this specific instance, we are going to hear about a seven-week solo journey that he did in Nunavut, Canada, the very northernmost part of Canada. And the wildlife encounters and experiences he had will leave you breathless. Stay tuned for the special edition. Well, I was blown away. I mean, I love backcountry adventure. You know, I have some pride in my woodsmanship. But what I've seen on what you're, you've done, that's a whole other level. And I'm just, my curiosity's peaked. You have, I mean, I paddle in Algonquin. I go in interior. I love it. Algonquin. Speaking of links, somebody photographed a lynx there last week crossing yeah. a log on a pond. In Algonquin? Yes. Oh, that's yeah. novel. Yeah, wow, I can wow. I'll send I can send it to you on Instagram, uh, gentlemen. Do. Yeah, he was uh, he was leading a, a moose photography workshop, I believe, and out popped the links. The, but the framing, the light, beautiful, everything was like, and that's just luck of being in the wilderness. The more time you're out there, these things unfold. It happens, well, right? It's been it's been a bit of a mystery as to why there's not, you know, links typically aren't in Algonquin Park. There's plenty of snowshoe here. The right. habitat's fine. So that that that's that's a big deal. I was very surprised to see it too. Yes. Yeah. I'll, I'll send it, I'll message it over to you. Yeah, please do. So on your website, I read that you have done these expeditions to the Arctic in canoe, seven to eight weeks long, and then you did this seven-week solo trip in Nunavut. And just before I let hear your story, I want our listeners to realize that Nunavut is, now it's the newest, it was established in 1999, April 1999. It's the newest, largest, and most northerly territory of Canada. The total area is 2 million square kilometers, and it was separated off from what was all encompassed the Northwest Territories originally, correct? Mm. And now, um, yeah, it were 800,000 800, square miles. Incredible landscape, and it's when you look at a map, I encourage people to do this to gain familiarity, it extends right into the Arctic Ocean with a multitude of islands. Mm. So you, the canoe you did, and, and this is, the images... Hopefully, maybe because we're covering this, you can share a couple, but I saw them on your website, too. I mean, you're not fooling around with this canoe setup, either. I mean, you're fully, fully tarped. I mean, because of the water you're in. Can you tell us about this adventure, why you did it? Uh, what, you know, but, what, but, the magic. I, you know, I've always, I've always loved canoes because they were a way to explore. Right. And, and canoes are great if you're interested in photography, because you can put a lot more stuff in a canoe than you can in a kayak. And they're silent. They're silent. You know, and so and the, so there's I mean, I could gab on about this forever. But, yeah, I've done a number of trips Go for up it. There. also in, you know, in all the territories and most of the provinces. I've, I've done a number of trips. But the, the thing about the canoe is it gets you into these wilderness areas. And, and my primary interest has always been, you know, wild places and wildlife. And for me, a canoe, because of the part of the world I grew up in, there was a lot more water than like hiking trails. You know, if I lived in Alberta, I probably would have been a hiker. But because where I lived, there was a lot more water to explore. And so I got hooked on this because you could explore these giant wilderness areas um, and, and in these roadless wildernesses. And, and, you know, there's times where I've been lying in a tent 
and I could just feel or not feel, but I could hear like the stomping on the ground. I'd just peek out and it'd be like a herd of 15 muskox walking by, you know, and, um, Oh man, I don't even I don't even know where to start. So I, 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 I you've got my mind swirling, and, I, and you're gonna have to ask me another question. Well, sure. muskox—they're on one—they're one of my bucket lists. So when I saw the muskox picture, I'm like, ah, oh, it's it's a, it a uh, great image too. I mean, to it's, have it's all, that it's all right. Of, I mean, the, the thing is, it's like you know, you look at the images of muskox and caribou that people get. I mean, God, your caribou shots are just second to none. I mean, they're just mind-bogglingly good. And the first number of trips I did up there. Um, again, I didn't really have photo gear. And when I think back on that, it, it stings. It really hurts because, you know, one of the things I always, always wanted to see, I mean, I, I'm a biologist by training, again, because of my interest in wildlife and ecology. And one of the things I always, always, always wanted to see was a massive caribou migration. And the first canoe trip I did in the Arctic, it was, I guess, seven weeks. And we saw, actually, this is weird, more grizzly bears than uh, caribou. I think we saw three grizzly bears and two caribou. Uh, we saw dozens of muskox but it was pretty poor in the, in the wildlife or sorry on the caribou front but on our second trip that was a back river thousand kilometer trip over 56 days or something like that and um that that oh, was slow when down, slow down say that again <laughs> say that one more time sorry i'm going don't to mind. excited no no i want to hear that that so a thousand kilometer trip over 56 days yeah yeah by canoe. nice wow there was, there was six of us on that trip and the back river it's it's the biggest longest river in Nunavut, which I think makes it qualify as one of the wilder uh, rivers on Earth, because it's undammed. There's no development along the way, and it, it, that makes it a pretty special part of Earth. And of course, the other neat thing is when you travel along there, I mean, there's all this archaeological sites. I mean, you find all these tent rings from the Inuit people. You'll find, we found stone arrowheads. I looked down once, and there's a stone arrowhead just lying on the sand, like it was dropped there yesterday. Just amazing, right? Put all these things together, and then it can be a pretty extraordinary place. It can be harsh. It can be forgiving, but it can be really harsh. Anyway, on that trip, that, that trip on the back river, that was the dream come true where we came into this massive, massive herd. I mean, I, I can't even speculate at the numbers of thousands of animals in this herd. And my jaw was just unhinged. I just sat there and I didn't even have, I didn't have a good camera. I had a crappy, crappy point and shoot. Um, digital camera with about a half second delay between when you press the shutter and the thing actually took a picture. Can you imagine trying to take a picture of something moving like that? <laughs> it, was, it was my father had convinced me that I should probably go digital instead of using this old Canon AE-1, which I still had at the time, uh, which took, you know, the AE-1 took great photos. You can put Velvia in there, you're off to the races, right? It's fantastic. <laughs> and so, yeah, seeing those herds, and, and we bumped into several herds over the course of you know, the trip was eight weeks and there was a two week stretch there in the middle where we uh, were bumping into these herds. And that, that was just breathtaking. Right. And of course, where there's caribou, there's wolves. And so we'd have wolves trot through camp in the middle of the morning and sometimes follow along as we're paddling down the river and often fall asleep at night with wolves howling off in the hills. And uh, it's just one of those I, I feel particularly fortunate to have experienced that because since that time, uh, caribou populations in the barren lands um, have massively, massively declined. Uh, and I think there's probably multiple reasons for that. And I do not claim to be any kind of expert in that. Climate change is uh, probably a contributing factor for sure. And there's also natural fluctuations in these populations. But um, that is really sad, but also 
Um, not that I needed anything to remind me how special it was to get to see those animals, but man, that, that was pretty neat. Yeah. How does a trip like that unfold? Do you have resupply points? Because how can you pack enough stuff for that amount of time? Or did you just have points where you knew you were going to meet up or have something flown in? No, that was that, that both, all those trips were, um, self-sufficient. We had no pickups. And so on the, the really long one, at the start of the trip, we had one pack that, for safety's sake, to make sure nobody got hurt, we'd get two people to lift it to put it in the boat. Because that, that had all like our, our basics, like our flour, sugar, cornmeal, just those bulk items, you know? Um, and, and it was so heavy that you really wanted to be careful lifting it. Um, and the only reason we packed it like that is because for the first part of that trip, there wasn't any portages, or portages, as my American friends say. But um, yeah, so it was all self-sufficient. And, uh, and, and that, that's part of the magic of it because you really separate yourself from everything else that goes on in your life, you know, and, and you become more attuned. I mean, I think being out there, especially on the trip when I was by myself for seven weeks, you, I noticed myself just becoming more attuned. Like when I find myself, cause you know, you're outside all the time and then you go inside and you're not talking to anybody. There's no noise. There's no, you know, there's no phones. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a phone or anything. And so I'd go inside my tent, zip up the doors, and I'd feel kind of cut off because I feel like I couldn't really hear the wind. I couldn't hear what the water was doing. And I would just notice subtle changes in the wind direction, which for me were kind of a big deal as far as like how much I was noticing. But I thought, geez, what is it like if you are literally born in a caribou skin tent on this land and you live here and you don't know anything else? Like just imagine how refined your ability is to sense the landscape and what's going on around you. And and, and that that experience of being solo there just – gave me real reverence for what the um, indigenous people must have experienced living out there, what that existence must have been like, and what it's like to be a wild animal living out there as well. You know, so, yeah. well, I think so many people think that's a hardship, right? But mm-hmm. in fact, it's mm-hmm. if you are born there and that's just the way it is, you just, mm-hmm. it's life. It's not that big of a deal. It's, that's how you exist. Yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine. But, <clears throat> but yeah, that, so that on, was... Yeah, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no. I didn't want to interrupt. Mm-mm. On that trip, then, what is the best time of year for that? Is that more of a spring thing? You Probably not, right? It's more no, of a fall? Summer. 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 So you have, <clears throat> traditionally, you have the window of July and August only, because before that, and even into July, some of the water lake, waterways are still frozen. And then once you get towards the tail end of August, you can be getting into some pretty nasty weather. I mean, winter's coming down, and it come, can come down really hard. That, that window has opened up a little bit with the changing climate in the last 20 years. But, you know, on that back river trip, we had to drag our boats over frozen lakes in the middle of July. Actually, it was the third week of July. These giant big lakes up there, they're still frozen. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's a pretty little window uh, to, to get up there to paddle for sure. And then what about the bugs? Mm. Yeah, like nightmares. <laughs> I came up with a, I, I came up with a new, you know, I, I've, I've planted trees for a lot of years and I've done a lot of field work and um, I've, I've spent a lot of time in, in bug territory and, and I came up with a new um, collective noun for like a lot of black flies. It's an atrocity of black flies because <laughs> it just, it just makes everything so hard, right? It just it makes does. everything so you just, you got to wear a bug net. Most people do. There's a few people who just don't, I don't, it's bathe themselves in bug dope or something but 
yeah, it's uh, it can be a real challenge. But you know what you hope for is you know what you do is you get, you get your boat all loaded and then you go for a walk, and then you race back to your boat as fast as you can and paddle away from shore as fast as you can and hope to leave the majority of the bugs behind you. And after you paddle for a couple hours, the bugs tend to disappear and then you just try to avoid going to land uh, as, for as long as you can to stay away from the bugs and then set up camp as long as you can but you know i had to i was taking doing some landscape photography up there and you happen to look through your viewfinder through like the mesh of your bug net it makes it a lot harder to tell if your focus is sharp very difficult <laughs> yeah. other, i've done a lot of research on trips like this because i want to do one one day what about when you decide to pick a place to camp i mean the mm. the a flood can happen that fast up there right so you some, really got to pick and choose your places don't you you, you do particularly like in the barren lands, it's not so bad in that respect, but in some of the other places, like up in the like Mackenzie Mountains and the Yukon and stuff, like uh, some of those other rivers I've paddled there, like I've seen the river level climb by a meter or two at night when there's a heavy rain because it's just like the steep mountain valleys and everything just floods in there. And so, you know, it's kind of like a rising tide. You you got to think a little bit about that for sure. But uh, in the barren lands, the bigger threat is making sure that it's just wind because there's nothing. I mean, there's no trees. There's nothing to stop the wind, and it's. It's not flat terrain, but it's rolling. And when that, when those storms come down, I mean, man, you, you sure better make sure you've got your tent in a good spot and you've secured it well because we've had tents get ripped, shredded open, and we, we've had a 80-pound canoe get literally tossed down the beach into the water, which I didn't think was actually possible. But, man, that, that was a, a learning moment for sure. After that, I always, always, always tied up the boat, you know. The things, the things you learn, right? Yeah. So – You've you've touched on it. You've talked about some of the wildlife stuff. What was probably the most? Obviously, I think the caribou herd would be probably the most intriguing. Mm -hmm. But what was beyond that? What else did you see that was? I mean, I'm sure you saw some wolverines. Well, oh geez, I actually published a story about that. The one wolverine I've ever seen. Yeah. So I'll just be. So I found on on my solo trip again. One of you said this. Like when you're on your own, you just see more wildlife, right? So on that solo trip, man, I saw. I mean, I found three wolf dens. I found three active wolf dens. I saw, you know, for the last two weeks of that trip, I saw caribou every single day. And, uh, you know, I watched Arctic fox, like, chasing down Canada geese. I watched Canada geese because in their, their flightless mol- uh, molting period, they can't fly, right? And I, I'd come around the bend a couple times, and there'd be geese in the water, and I'd scare them. i feel bad. And then they they go running away from the river because they can't fly. And boom, all of a sudden the wolves come down, just nail them. I saw grizzly bears doing that too. And it, I mean, it just went on and on. I mean, saw Arctic fox and showdowns with wolves. You know, Arctic fox and a Canada goose is a pretty even match. You know, when that goose puts his wings out and starts jabbing and with that beak, it's pretty formidable for a little Arctic fox. I mean, an Arctic fox isn't that much bigger than a hefty house cat. And they run at approximately the same speed, at least the, the ones, the chases that I saw. So all kinds of stuff. But um, the wolverine was a neat one because I was, I was, in the boat, just taking a break, drifting downstream in a gentle section of the river. And I looked downstream, and I couldn't believe it. I saw this wolverine nosing his way up the shoreline, and I'd never seen him before. And I was just, I'm like, I don't need to tell you. You can imagine perfectly well how I felt. And uh, and I was sitting there, and I was going to reach for my camera, and I thought, you know what? If I reach back and grab that pelican case and open it, it might be all over. So I just decided to not take the camera out. At this point, I graduated. I had a camera. And uh, I just sat there with my binoculars watching it. And as I was watching it, I was totally fixated on this animal, and it was coming my way. And it was just following the shoreline. I'm like, my God, this thing's going to walk within 50 feet of me if it keeps following this trajectory. 
and I'm out in the river, so it's got no reason to be like looking out to the river. But slowly, like this weird sort of thing started distracting me in the back of my head. I'm like, what? What is that? And all of a sudden, a helicopter flew right over top of us. I'm in the middle of a million square kilometers of wilderness here. A helicopter flew right over us, scared the wolverine, and then it circled around because I guess it saw me. I'm in a red canoe in the middle of the boat, the only human figure within who knows how far. Anyway, so the helicopter landed. The pilot, uh, she came over and said, hey, what are, you, what are you doing here? I said, I'm on canoe today. Hey, did you see the wolverine? She said, what, what wolverine? Anyway, so that was, I was really... The one you scared us. off. Yeah, the only one I've ever seen. <laughs> so wow. that was a special moment that went awry. But, you know, what, one of the, I'll say one more thing. I mean, seeing the wolves and having, having the wolves around and, and, and finding the dens and having them, you know, falling asleep at night listening to the wolves is really, one of the dens I found, like, I'd, there'd be, it was actually on a little island, but there's a lot of scrub, a lot of willow, so I couldn't actually see the den. You'd see the adults would swim the river and, and go up into the mountains, the large hills, small mountains, looking for uh, you know, food and stuff. But they'd be in communication with the den. And at this point, I was windbound. This was right at the Arctic coast. I couldn't go anywhere. It was too windy to paddle. But you could hear the wolves communicating with each other. What was so cool, I'd be lying there in bed reading a book or something, and you'd, um, you'd hear a distant howl. Just, you could just make it out through the wind, right? And then you'd hear like, an adult returned the howl from the den and all of a sudden you'd hear all the pups chime in, right? And that was just magic because they're all, you know, they're like teenagers with cracking voices, right? They just can't <laughs> quite get that right. They're trying the best they can. And I was trying to count them. Like, how many are there? Is there, is there four? Is there five? Is there six? I couldn't really tell, but that, that was really, and that was right at the end of my trip. That was kind of like a, a farewell. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Amazing. So you asked me a simple question, but you, no, no. I, I mean, it's so awesome to hear. And I could, I could sit, that's why we do this podcast. Cause I could do this for hours on end. I yeah. have one other question. When I, I floated a river in Alaska, it was only like a 10 day trip. That's a baby trip compared to what oh, you were but doing. Was, but we were constantly surveying the river. I mean, cause you're at the mercy of the river, right? How much of that do you have to do when you're by yourself? If you come across a big bend, Mm-hmm. Are you getting out and walking it, checking it? If so, that amount of time that you spend mm-hmm. surveying just for safety's sake, yeah, has got to be yeah. incredible. And it's just got to be, you know, it's constantly changing, right? You never know what's around the corner. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And when you when you're on your own, you just take that much more precaution. And so there's rapids that I probably would have run if I was with you guys out there or with the people I normally paddle with. But on that trip, I'd be like, yeah, you know what? I'll probably walk this one or line my boat down. And so, yeah, there's a lot more vigilance, uh, a lot more vigilance. And um, that definitely took, definitely takes time. There's no question that takes time to like, like you say, like there's that old rule, you know, there's a, if you can't see around, if you can't see, you know, calm water around a bend, you got to go look. And so I did a lot of looking because there was a, you know, then there was one river where literally I came around a bend and looked and there was about a 30 foot waterfall. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm pretty glad I came when I came around to look at that, you know, because it's not marked on the map as a falls. It's just marked like any other rapid on the map. It just doesn't look any different at all. I mean, I suppose if you looked at the contour lines and carefully, you'd notice it, but you'd have to be paying attention as you're paddling down to notice that, right? You know what would be spectacular with today's time to do something like that mm. is you have a drone now, right? Yeah, I know. I mean, that would kind of... 
you know, it's going to disrupt some things, but it's also going to be kind of cool because you could send it out 500 yards, check stuff out. Mm-hmm. You see a whole different outlook on the landscape. Yeah. Can you imagine doing that with a drone? Oh, that and the other thing I've always thought about too is just like all, all the video making capacity that exists now with the technology that makes it simple. Like I wish that had existed. I mean, that trip was 11 years now, ago now, that, that solo trip. And you know, you can throw up a drone now and have it follow you down the river, right? So you can, you, you know, what yeah. a great way to experience, you know, you look at that after and see yourself in the landscape paddling down and sharing that with your friends and family. Um, you know, I wish there was a GoPro camera uh, back in those days when I was doing that stuff, but sure it wasn't there. But yeah, there's a lot of possibilities now that didn't exist in those days. All right. So it, now we got to plan a new trip. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. <laughs> with all these technological distractions, it'd be a very different thing, wouldn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I envy you that seeing the caribou would be, yeah, that would be the number one thing with Mark. The muskox would be incredible. And then just all that ancillary, mm-hmm. just that other stuff would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was the, the thing that I found is, I mean, I've done other solar trips. Like I, uh, two weeks was the longest one before that. Probably the nicest. Well, two weeks I did in Algonquin Park once, Mark, another along the North Shore Lake Superior, which is also a beautiful country. But it just strips things down for me, at least. You know, the, the chatter disappears, and over the you know, course of that time, it just becomes more and more uh, peaceful. And I found, like, I started actually having to bring a notebook in the canoe with me because I just felt like, you, you know, I'm a writer as well, and my creativity was just flourishing in this once you strip away all the busyness of life at home. And uh, that was that was pretty nice. But um, one of the things that wasn't as much fun was, like, you know, I was taking a lot of pictures and stuff. I'm like, well, sometimes you need a person or a canoe in the picture and you don't just want empty canoe, you want a person in the canoe. So I'd set up these shots with like, you know, an external timer on my camera. And then I'd, I'd be like, okay, I need to walk myself back to my canoe and then paddle down. That's probably going to take, I'd, I'd time it all. And then I had like a stopwatch on my watch and I'd press go on the camera and then I'd walk at an even pace back to my canoe. And then I'd get in the canoe and start paddling and try to get myself in the exact spar- right part of the scene, like according to my stopwatch and what the camera's doing for when the trigger was going to go. And I'd, have, I'd take like a sequence of 10 pictures or something. But there's some pictures that I took. It literally took me like two hours to take that one picture of me paddling by. Whereas if one of you guys was paddling with me, I'd be like, oh, yeah, go paddle there. Quick, done, right? So, or you yeah, just I mean, there's something to be said for doing a group. But doing it on your own, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. has got to be quite the – Yeah, I mean, just was, finishing something like that, that sense of accomplishment and that sense of wonder. Yeah. It was just something I was really curious about. I just wondered what it would – I think – I'd read about lots of different people's solo expeditions sailing around the world or whatever, whatever, and I just was always really curious about what that would be like. And it was a, it was very satisfying to, uh, to complete that, just because mostly because it was a big dream, and it was like, hey, I just did that thing that had been dream mine for a long time, and that that was really satisfying. And I think that's why once you start asking me questions about it, I have a hard time shutting up because it's still satisfying more than ten years later. Yeah. Will be you need your own podcast uh, series. Yeah. Well, I don't know about that, but. <laughs> yeah. Ron, I cut you off. I'm sorry. Did you have something? Oh, I was just going to say that's another technological advance. I mean, even doing it solo, you just throw a throw a trigger on your camera now, plug yeah. it in, and you get to the spot that you want. You do it all in one take. You save yourself two hours. <laughs> really? You can do that? Oh, I didn't even know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah so much is different. I mean, now a friend of mine was on a canoe trip up in northern Manitoba last year, and he was texting me like every other day. I mean, 
I suppose in those days I could have done that through my satellite phone, but I would not have wanted to do that because I'd be running down the battery on my emergency communication device, you know, but, um, yeah, it's a different world now technologically and how these things go, uh, safer because people get in trouble and they have easier ways out, but, um, that can make people perhaps do things a little riskier. Complacent. Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's interesting. Yeah. The, the, the te- technology with the Garmin in reach and being able to text. I mean, it's good to be able to communicate. Oh, so everybody yeah. knows and safe. Yeah. 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 I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. People be take more risks because of it. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Potentially. Eh? I don't know. Hmm. It, maybe it's not, maybe it's not like a conscious thought that maybe right. subconsciously you feel more safe than you are. Right, but right. you know, people would ask me because, so I had like, I had like a, well, InReach just didn't exist in those days, so I had a personal locating beacon, which all it does is send an SOS. It has to be a life-threatening situation or you'll get yourself in trouble. But I'd have one of those on me, and then I had a satellite phone in the canoe. And, it, um, and you know, those are really not so much for me, but for my family, right? Sure. And people say, you know, well, you know, people, it's funny. You go on these trips and people say, well, you know, have you got a satellite phone? As if that's going to protect you. I'm like, well, yes, I do. But it won't help me if I just drown, Right. And so I think, you know, you, you, you do have to be careful out there. And, uh, yeah. It takes a lot of courage and, and an adventurous spirit to go to that destination and do that solo. Well, you know, Mark, courage and stupidity are often confused with one another. <laughs> the story you have to tell from this voyage, you know, it, I don't think that factored in so much. So Yeah. Uh, so the the book being caribou or the movie being caribou yes. the documentary you i i love that me that too documentary i mean it just yeah. resonates right oh yeah but you actually have a, a much closer connection than any of us could ever possibly imagine i mean oh. there's totally different for sure but you can relate on a whole different level to that you're sending shivers up my spine because when i was Watching that caribou herd, I thought, my God, all I want to do is follow them. I just want to follow them and see, I just want to go. And then I came back and like, I don't know, months, a year later, I opened up McLean's magazine and read about this guy, Karsten Hoyer, who was going to follow the porcupine caribou herd. I thought, my God, this guy's actually doing it. And I read his book, Being Caribou, which I've devoured more than once, while I was doing this Lynx research contract. Then I wrote him a letter. I was so moved by the book. I wrote him a letter, and we, we've had quite a bit of correspondence over the years, and uh, and I agree that the film was also amazing, and um, yeah, it just it just it just grabbed as soon as I heard about the project, it just grabbed me because I'd had like a thought, like wow, what would it be like to follow a caribou herd, and there they were doing it, and man, that was really amazing thing that they did. Whew. I, I would to to do that would be amazing. I oh, I don't know. I mean, it just seems like such a there's no way to do it. I mean, they yeah. did it. Obviously, you can yeah. do it, but yeah. everything kind of has to fall into place, I would think. Oh, yeah. And it took everything they had, right? Like, they were getting, like, physically right on the edge. And, you know, with the weather, they didn't have a lot of margin for error because, you know, they had no body fat left and they were exhausted and the weather was coming bad or it was getting bad. But, you know, so many things have to line up. I mean, you got to find a herd. You got to be able to stick with it. You got to, you know, so many things. Oh yeah, yeah, I was just that. That story to me is just. I still have the book on my shelf. Same. Yeah, I have the book and yeah. I have the movie on my laptop. I watch it a lot. 
Mm, I should I should get a copy. Of it. Can you buy that movie online now? Yeah, I think I got it off of Amazon or. Uh, oh yeah. Somewhere I got it online. I got a digital copy. Uh, that's so cool, right? Because back in the day when it came out, you couldn't do that. You'd have to right. send away for the CD or the DVD or VHS. Or... Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This pertains more to our earlier conversation, but there's the spirit bears. Mm. What about blue bears? Oh yeah, is, right. Is that intriguing for you, or have you oh, actually been there? Have you seen them? I have not. Have you read the book, The Blue Bear by yep. Lynn Scholler? Isn't that great? Oh, I love that story. I have not seen a blue bear. Um, there was, there was a. You saw it, Mark. The uh, there was um, on the in Canadian Geographic this year. There was a a blue bear on the cover, and it, those are the nicest blue bear photos I've ever seen. And but I don't know. Have you, either any of you guys had that opportunity? No. I, I mean, there's that book that you referred to was my introduction into that whole deal, and I was captivated. Oh, me too. Me too. But yeah, that's that's uh, something that's totally new to me. I, I haven't even tried to be honest. But. And I don't know. I'm not the person to do it. Can Mark? Do you know enough about him to give us a description of what the blue bear is? Or it's called also Jim, called a glacier bear. So it is yeah. a black bear. It's another color phase of a black bear that occurs in this population due to genetics as well. But I I'm not sure. Again, how do people census these areas? I mean, there's yeah. limited budgeting. There's no way of really knowing how many blue bears or glacier bears color phase there are. So I don't think anybody has any idea. Right. But I think they're I think it's pretty safe to say they're more rare than a white bear. I guess that's safe, but like you say, who knows? It's pure speculation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I can tell you that a lot less people have seen them than a white bear. That's there's no that, that that's some some safe territory there. I think yeah. access has a lot to do with it too. Mm-hmm. At least yeah, as evidenced by the book. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I think we're gonna to have to put in a lot of links to a lot of different books and periodicals oh, yeah. and for this podcast because there's just so much. But oh yeah. yeah, it's been awesome talking to you. I could do this over and over and over, and hopefully oh. we'll be on a trip one of these days where we can do it. Well, it'd be great because I was yabbering. I didn't get to you know. I'm usually the person asking the questions here, so you know I could ask all of you guys uh, endless questions. You know we could uh, we could be at this all night easily. So uh, hopefully someday we we'll get the opportunity to face to face. That'd be really great. What are your bookings like over the next couple of years? Just out Pretty, of curiosity. Yeah, it's been really busy. I, I think I'm having a bit of a hard time keeping up with it um, as things have grown. But I, I think we're probably probably full through 2020 at this point, and uh, I haven't gone any further than that just as because of capacity because mm-hmm. uh you know again i've got other I, I work as a writer for some other first nations and i do some biology work and you know being a dad and stuff so but yeah we're, we're we're pretty much full through 2020 as far as i can gather um but i'm not sure what it's going to look like after that right yeah. yeah well the information will be easy to find through our website and of course through yours directly we'll put the links in our show notes along with the material that been discussed today i want to thank you very much tim for taking the time i've enjoyed just sitting and listening to so much of today's podcast so thank you my pleasure guys i hope that you've enjoyed today's podcast you can find more of our team's work on instagram facebook youtube and on our website at wildandexposed.com and no matter which podcast platform you're listening to us on make sure to hit that follow or subscribe button and to give us a five-star review or a thumbs up as those help us to do what we love to do and to bring you this podcast on a regular basis.
I want to thank those of you that give us a shout out on social media and that those that share their comments and questions with us. We appreciate all the interaction and get back to everything that we can. And I have to spend a moment and thank our hardworking and talented producer, Missy McKenzie, for all that she does behind the scenes to bring you this podcast for your listening enjoyment. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.